the uh, <clears throat> subcommittee on State Department and USAID Management International Operations and Bilateral International Development of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. Let me welcome our guests. Uh, we're here today uh, to talk about global information wars. Is the United States winning or losing? So uh, this is our second hearing of our subcommittee, and I want to thank Senator Haggerty, our, my ranking member, for the help in putting together uh, this important oversight hearing. Uh, we believe that oversight is one of the most important functions of our subcommittee. So our first hearing was on the USAID on localization and building up local capacity. Uh, th this hearing will be on the U.S. Agency for Global Media, USAGM. Uh, and I might acknowledge this is the first opportunity that we have uh, our new leader of that agency uh, appearing before this committee. Uh, and we look forward uh, to uh, your views and uh, a discussion as to how the recent changes in law has affected the ability of the agency to perform its mission. So today we'll turn our attention to USAGM and the topic of global information wars with the goal of identifying ways in which the USAGM and its affiliated organizations can operate more effectively in the context of competition for influence in global information space. With malign actors like China and Russia, Iran and Cuba, elevating their efforts to use disinformation and propaganda to basically uh, try to co-op the uh, knowledge of their own people in their own country and around the world. The question is whether peoples of the world can any, any longer tell from, fact from fiction, news from lies. USAGM reaches 410 million viewers worldwide on a weekly basis through information sources from two federal organizations, the Voice of America and the Office of Cuba Broadcasting, and four nonprofit organizations that are grantees. Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, Radio Free Asia, the Middle East Broadcasting Networks, and the Open Technology Fund. These organizations have spent decades earning the credible Credibility of local audiences worldwide. Behind the USAGM brands are clearly established and st strongly enforced rules that the information provided to the public is unbiased and honest. When propaganda and disinformation jam the information spheres, populations worldwide know they can turn to USAGM outlets for valid and trustworthy information. Countries, including Russia and China, deploy immense resources to wage global information campaigns, attempting to shape the narratives of their actions to their advantage, most often by twisting the truth or deflecting attention to distract the public from their true goals. Russia's blatant disregard for the truth, including by conducting disinformation campaigns and spamming content feeds with narratives from the paid trolls, farms, creates a muddied information environment in which it is incredibly difficult for the average citizen to differentiate between fact and fiction. Russia's state-directed media and diplomatic account online operate a deliberative, coordinated effort to spread propaganda that aims to justify or deflect blame from their ongoing, unprovoked violence against Ukraine. They continue to broadcast this propaganda worldwide, including in Latin America and Africa. In many of these areas that contain both U.S. partners and friends of Moscow, public opinion about the conflict is still an unresolved competition area open for shifting influence. China's large-scale propaganda campaigns spread by pro-Beijing content worldwide to mass its true intentions. 
China regularly sets up alliances with international media organizations providing free content to feed to local populations, often with strings attached contracts that prohibit these organizations from using content from credible news sources. In exchange for kickbacks to corrupt individuals that sign these contracts, the citizens of these countries are denied access to quality and credible information. It is at this challenging environment that we're here today to examine the critical role of US AGM in operating within a context in which global players like Russia and China are actively attempting to misinform the public for their own gain. It's through this hearing that we hope to better understand the global context in which the competition for influence is underway, the challenges this presents to AS, US AGM in disseminating its news products in the way in which USAGM can improve its work. We look forward to the witnesses. We have two panels today, but let me first yield uh, to Senator Haggerty. Thank you, Chairman Cardin. Um, it's great to be with you today here, and I'm looking forward to talking with our distinguished panel of witnesses. Uh, first, if I might open by introducing for the record a attachment here. It's going to accompany the written statement that uh, Dr. David Stilwell is a Fox Fellow for Future Pacing Threats, Institute of Future Conflict in the U.S. Air Force Academy, and a former Assistant Secretary of State for East Asian Pacific Affairs is provided. I might enter that for the record. It'll be useful later. Without objection, it'll be part of the record. Um, Chairman Carvin, first of all, again, thank you for convening this hearing today. I also want to recognize our two panels of witnesses who graciously agreed to join us, and we look forward to hearing from them today. In the age of rapid technological change and digital connectivity, the United States faces unprecedented challenges competing with formidable opponents, such as China and Russia. Today, our subcommittee is focusing on the topic of information wars. Is the United States winning or losing? The hearing title itself inherently prompts a series of related questions. What does winning look like? What are our adversaries' goals in promoting their narrative and story to a domestic or to an international audience? How serious is the threat of disinformation from China and Russia to U.S. interests? And what specific tactics are these countries using to spread disinformation? And for the sake of this hearing, is the United States government doing enough to ensure that there's efficient oversight and support of our public institutions to compete in this space? The U.S. Agency for Global Media is positioned to play a vital role in this fight by promoting American ideals across the world. However, USAGM and its affiliates in this regard have at times fallen short of its mission. Additionally, USAGM faces external challenges, including the rise of new technologies and social media platforms that have made it easier for our adversaries to spread disinformation and sow division among our citizens. It's time that we think about the information space as a critical line of effort in strategic competition. We need tailored messaging and programming developed from people who do not apologize for America and know, how, know that America is the most exceptional nation in the history of the world. As ranking member of this subcommittee, I'm committed to ensuring that the USAGM receives the proper oversight to effectively and efficiently carry out its work. Today's hearing provides an opportunity to examine the USAGM's operations, identify areas for improvement, and discuss strategies for countering the information warfare tactics of our adversaries. To put it bluntly, we cannot allow the United States to fall behind our adversaries in the information wars. And we must innovate and continue to support independent journalism and promote free and open sources of information. We cannot afford to have a US AGM that is performing suboptimally, 
the stakes are simply too high. I look forward to hearing from our witnesses today and working together to strengthen America's position in this space. Mr. Chairman, back to you. Thank you, Senator Haggerty. Our first witness is Amanda Bennett, who is the CEO of the U.S. Agency for Global Media. She served as director of the Voice of America from 2016 to 2020. Previously, she was the executive editor of Bloomberg News, editor of the Philadelphia Inquirer, editor of the Herald Leader in Lexington, Kentucky, and managing editor of the Oregonian in Portland, Oregon. Ms. Bennett also worked as a Wall Street Journal reporter for 23 years. She is, in one word, a highly regarded professional journalist. It's a pleasure to have you here. Your full statement will be made part of the record. You may proceed as you wish. Thank you, and uh, Chairman Cardin, Ranking Member Haggerty, and the other members of the subcommittee, thank you for the opportunity to speak to you today about the U.S. Agency for Global Media's work on the front lines of the global information war. First, Chairman Cardin, on behalf of our entire agency, thank you for your steadfast support of independent media. Throughout the years, your tireless advocacy has enabled our networks to continue their crucial work, and we wish you the very best and know that the Senate will not be the same without you. As many of you know, through the work of our six entities, the Voice of America, Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty, Radio Free Asia, Middle East Broadcasting Networks, the Office of Cuba Broadcasting, and the Open Technology Fund, USAGM provides fact-based news and information to parts of the world that do not have a free and open press. If you, I may, I'd like to play a quick video that shows what we do. Y el día de mi captura llevaba puesta una mascarilla de la voz de América. Thank you very much. And today on uh, World Press Freedom Day, I'd like to also extend our thanks to the administration for the strong statement that was made in support of a free press, and also to advocate on behalf of imprisoned journalists around the world like Evan Gershkovich in uh, Russia right now, who worked for the Wall Street Journal. So as all of this shows, we're, we're at a critical moment in history. And as we speak, the People's Republic of China, Russia, and Iran are making heavy investments to both control the flow of information inside their countries and rapidly expand their malign influence abroad. 
equally troubling. They often work together to amplify this malign influence on a global scale. And the reality is that if we miss this opportunity to make strategic investments now, we may run the risk of losing the global information war. We should be alarmed about this, but still optimistic. Alarmed because we're being vastly outspent, but optimistic because we still have the competitive advantage. We have measurable data showing that our networks are outperforming the PRC and Russia in many key markets. Make no mistake, this is a moment that USAGM was built for, as it was during World War II and the Cold War, to combat malign foreign influence. In times of crisis, audiences seek us out from their closed environments, and they trust us to report the truth, especially when it's a truth their own governments would prefer to hide. The legislated firewall, which ensures the editorial independence of our broadcasters, is essential to our high trust and credibility. And it's not too late for us to secure this competitive advantage. In China, the PRC has built one of the most repressive information environments in the world, and has been working hard to export this model to other countries. But despite the PRC's best efforts, VOA is still vastly outperforming the reach of PRC's local language brands in Latin America and Africa. Inside China, our audiences are willing to go to great lengths to reach our content. Even in the context of the PRC's sophisticated internet censorship, Radio Free Asia's coverage of the 2022 protests in China broke records for web, web traffic and social media engagement. And the Open Technology Fund is critical to this success. Our newest grantee supports virtual public networks, VPNs, in China, which right now help over 4 million monthly active users securely access the inter internet and our journalism. When Russia invaded Ukraine, the Kremlin quickly silenced dissenting voices inside of Russia while rapidly expanding its malign influence abroad. Equipped with OTF-supported tools and by translating coverage in real time, USAGM was able to take the work of RFERL and VOA's brave journalists on the ground in Ukraine and expose the horrible reality of Putin's war for the rest of the world to see. Remarkably, we are also reaching a growing audience in and near Russia. In fact, RFERL and VOA video content in Russian and Ukrainian was viewed 8 billion times in the year since the full-scale invasion, more than double the year before. The crucial reporting, however, did not come without grave risks. And tragically, last year, RFERL's Vera Herrick paid the ultimate price for her commitment to, changing the, to sharing the truth, no matter how dangerous. In Iran, the government is escalating its crackdown on independent media and its own citizens as it continues malign foreign influence operations. But that did not stop VOA and RFARL journalists from fearlessly covering the historic protests that followed Masa Amini's death in 2022 with record audience numbers. And even as the Iranian re regime severely blocked the internet during these protests, one in four Iranian adults used OTF-supported circumvention tools to access information. Our true power lies in our ability to harness the reach of the entire USAGM network for greater global impact. 
And we know that even the very best journalism is of no use if people can't see it or hear it. With the support of Congress for our fiscal year 2024 budget request of 944 million, USAGM will continue to find new ways to reach audiences, improve our infrastructure from digital security to physical safety, lead new forms of engaging content, and leverage this global reach. Through a growing network of over 4,000 media partners, we are positioned to serve larger audiences around the world for just pennies per person. With our size and scalable impact worldwide, our work represents a powerful investment. We're more committed than ever to delivering on our mission in today's dangerous world of information manipulation and heavy investment by authoritarian regimes. And we can't do that without the support of Congress. Chairman Cardin, Ranking Member Haggerty, and members of the subcommittee, thank you again. I look forward to your questions. Well, thank you very much for your, your testimony. We're going to start with Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair and Ms. Bennett. Good to see you again. Um, I was pleased to see that one of the panelists on the second panel, and I'm going to duck out for a minute but then come back for the second panel, Jessica Brandt, um, in her written testimony urged greater resourcing for USAGM and VIEW in Latin America. Given the presence of over 40 million native Spanish speakers here and the inherent linkages we have with the region, um, given the increasing footprint of both Russia and Chinese efforts in the region, do we have sufficient resources dedicated to our uh, needs in Latin America? We do not. We do not. Uh, we've been severely under-resourced in both of those areas in particular. And as, as we're talking about, this is now a global problem. This is not a problem with the mis and disinformation being just inside the countries. It's coming everywhere. So we actually need a lot more resources in order to reach these people. And there are many, many ways in which we could be better resourced, including technologically, personnel, um, and, uh, and also in terms of journalist safety as well, because we're increasingly putting journalists into harm way, harm's way. I wanted to ask about journalist safety on World Press Freedom Day. Um, how have we responded to repressive environments? And in particular, I'm gonna stick with the Americas. Independent media in Nicaragua have been uh, severely abused um, and their uh, uh, resources cut. Uh, but there's also an increasingly dangerous environment for journalists in neighboring countries. Um, El Salvador, Guatemala, Mexico has had a horrible set of challenges for journalists. What are we doing uh, and what more can we do to try to provide uh, safety for independent journalists in Latin America? That is one thing we are really working extremely hard to make sure that we have basically whatever the state of the art protection is for journalists, and that includes equipment, it includes protection, physical protection, it includes protection in the buildings that they occupy, it includes training about how to handle themselves in very difficult situations, and it also includes making sure that we have the resources to remove journalists from dangerous areas and to find other places to take them when they find themselves in danger. It's something, as you've seen, we faced around the world, particularly in Russia. I just returned from a trip to, um, to see Radio for Europe and Radio Liberty, where we met with the Russian journalists who've had to move four to six times now because they had to flee from inside Russia 
some of them with only a bag in their hand, and one of them very plaintively said, I, I hope my neighbor's taking care of my dog, and they've been gone for a year, and they hope they'll be back in a couple of months, and I leave it to you to decide whether that's the case. But being able to support those people and find them other places to go, other places to live, help them uh, deal with the trauma they've, 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 they've endured, all of those things are critical because of what we ask them to do, we're asking them to put themselves in harm's way, and we owe them at least the best protection we can give them. Last question I want to ask is, a, is just an oversight question on internal management. Um, your agency is one that in employee surveys um, recently, but it, it has not just been recently, has been ranked pretty lowly in terms of the morale of employees. You're new to the position. You have a lot of experience in working at some very, very uh, high watt uh, news organizations. What are you doing as the CEO to try to bring up morale uh, at USAGM? And, and, and Senator, I appreciate your, your discretion in talking about the lowness. We were actually dead last for a long time. And, uh, and we probably deserve, deserved it. Last year, however, we got an award from the Partnership for Public Service for being the most improved agency, I believe, in the entire government under the leadership of the acting CEO and the acting uh, director of Voice of America and uh, the returned heads of all the other agencies. Um, so that shows that it can, it can change. And, and literally giving people good equipment, giving people the proper leadership, giving people um, direction, making sure that we do the job of clearing away the red tape that often entangles them and makes it difficult for them even to get plane tickets to get to the places they're trying to, trying to, trying to work. All those things are important, and we are really committed to basically increasing the communication and the engagement with our employees. Again, because whether or not they're in harm's way, we deserve to give them the best that they can possibly have, and, and I, I think that's part of my responsibility. Excellent. Thank you, Mr. Chair. As you were saying how much you improved, I was thinking, well, it must have been the action of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and the bills that we passed that allowed that to... Very, very clearly. No question <laughs> must, about must it. Have been, must have been. No question about it. Senator Haggerty. Well, I, I think that was a very astute answer, Ms. Bennett, that you just gave our chairman. Um, thank you again for being here today. Um, and I also want to thank you for bringing up the plight of Evan Gerskovich. Uh, that's a tragic situation, uh, and I very much appreciate your raising that issue uh, here, because I think the world needs to know what Russia has done in that circumstance. Um, today, USAGM is before us requesting $944 million. Uh, that is a $59 million increase for fiscal year 2024, 7% um, above what we passed last year. Uh, as a lifelong business person, uh, I've always had to justify any request for investment that I've had to make to demonstrate uh, that that is a good investment, uh, that we're meeting stated goals and objectives, and that uh, we're going to deliver value for, for shareholders. Uh, and I think that USAGM owes the same sort of accountability to the American taxpayers and, of course, to Congress. So I, I wanted to put you in the shoes I've been in a number of times before and to just ask you for the, the one-minute elevator pitch, if you will, about how USAGM is a good investment for American taxpayers. 
Yes, Senator, thank you very much. And I'm, I'm very much in line with your way of thinking. You remember my first, uh, my first half of my life was spent at the Wall Street Journal, and so I have, I have a lot of respect for that way of thinking about things. And why is it a good investment? Because we are in an information war, and as we've seen, particularly in the, um, the invasion in Ukraine, and watching how that unrolled at the beginning, information may be as powerful as tanks. It, the information that we all saw helped change the course of, I think, what was going to happen there. And we are seeing now how our malign influencers are using their own inf information yeah. to help change the, the narrative and change the direction of things as well. And by using the additional funds that we're, we're, we're hopefully going to be provided, we're going to be able to get more journalists, better technology, um, and basically reach more people. Reaching more people is what causes the impact. Having people engage with an alternative, an alternative to the malign influences and to the, the, um, the corrupt information they're being given. We don't push back on their narrative. That's, that's, a, that's not an effective thing. What we do is we provide alternatives in places where there are no other alternatives. So you mentioned certain metrics in your opening statement about how we are outperforming competitors. Could you shed a little more light on what those metrics are? And also, you mentioned that uh, a specific metric in terms of for pennies, we are reaching people. Do you have any trend lines in terms of what it's costing us and how efficient? Are you gaining efficiency? Are you flat? How, how, how can you sort of clarify that for me a bit? And Senator, I, I would be absolutely delighted to come and share in great detail those metrics with you because we have, we have all those things. I've just actually finished a, a, a paper on what the actual cost of each um, individual that we reach is. And I'd be happy to share that with you right now. It, it varies in different parts of the world. Um, but th let me give you the, the things and I, about- And I think what I'm interested in is not only the absolute cost per person reached, but also what is the trend? Again, yeah. I'm trying to get yeah. at you know, where are you taking the agency, and again, why this is a good investment for the American taxpayer. Yeah, yeah. The, the, tre the, trend, is, the trend is towards greater efficiency. Um, and um, again, I would be happy to get you the the uh, the figures that can buttress that can buttress that argument. Um, I think the thing you asked originally was how do I know that we're still um, we still have a chance that we still have a foothold there. I just pulled a couple of things since this is about Africa and and Latin America. So in Nigeria right now, Voice of America reaches a third of all adults. Russia's state-controlled network RT reaches one percent. China Radio International, less than 3%. And that's despite massive, massive investments on both their parts in those areas. In Latin America, um, VOA reaches 47% adults weekly in Bolivia, 24% in Colombia, 51% in Dominican Republic, and 39% in Ecuador. While Russia's RT Spanish reaches 5% or less in each market, and the PRC's CGTN reaches 6% or less. And in Cambodia, despite... I, I, I'd love to get uh, yeah. maybe the full schedule that you're looking at. I can at. give you the whole you thing. I've got, I've got a great map with, yeah, all, with, I'd all, like to see with that. all the I, pictures. There are a couple of measures, though, that, and this is, this is what I'm struggling with as well. We talk about the goals being freedom and democracy. How do you think about metrics that assure us that you're obtaining uh, the goals of freedom and democracy? Have you had a way to get at that. Yeah, yes, and, and, and in fact, I do, I do highly respect the use of the taxpayers' fund and to make sure that we are trending in the, diff, in the direction of greater efficiency. And so 
while I haven't brought you a, a, a sheet with me of, of to, to demonstrate all that, I do have it at, at hand and I'm able to give it to you in any form I, you'd like. I, I look forward to that. And you can connect with my staff to do it. But again, it's, it's beyond just the trend lines and, and, and volume of people reach. But I'm very interested in metrics that you have to demonstrate that we're achieving greater freedom and democracy as we do that. So we also developed a, um, a measurement under the previous, uh, the second previous CEO, John Lansing, that was called a, a an impact measure, which pulled together both the size of the audience, the growth of the audience, and things that we worked on that helped try and demonstrate the impact, such as, for example, you can say that it's it's got an impact when um, the Ayatollah personally denounces us in his Twitter feed. You can say that you must be a good reason he's doing that. Um, when defectors from Korea say that they and their families listen to Radio Free Asia and Radio Free, um, and excuse me, and Voice of America, despite the fact that they face very grave dangers in doing so. There's other impact measures you can, you can, you can see. And, and for I'll, example- I'll be interested to see yeah, how you turn I, those I've anecdotes got, into measurable. Got, got all, all, those, all those things. Okay, great. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Well, clearly, as you point out, your mission includes our national security. We're seeing the growth of a new weapon, that's being used against our democratic institutions and it's called disinformation. And we see it deployed around the world. And we recognize that we have challenges in order to be able to deal with that. So uh, you already mentioned with Senator Kane that you could use additional resources in order to counter the influence in our own hemisphere. I want to sort of talk about how you can adjust the priorities that are necessary as international circumstances change. A few years ago, we wouldn't have predicted a war in Ukraine would it be as, uh, as challenging as it's been. We didn't know we, that, that Russia would actually invade Ukraine. We were worried about it, but now it's reality. We w didn't realize that Russia would invest so much in Spanish news as they're investing and preparing to do more. They don't have to worry about uh, um, appeasing a, appropriators or dealing with a Senate committee. They can just do what they want to do. Uh, we have a very open system. Uh, we guard very carefully the uh, journalistic independence of your agency, and we will, we will defend that. But we, as policymakers, want to make sure that we're placing our resources and priorities in those parts of the world where we are the most vulnerable. And that's our responsibility collectively. Now, we've changed your structure a couple times in the last your years. One of the issues I've always been concerned about with the local turf issues of the different grantees or organizations you have, are you as nimble as you need to be to respond to the current challenges? We know what China, we, we, we know what China's up to, and it's not in our national security interest to allow their disinformation to move unchallenged, and we know what Russia's out. Are you able to marshal the resources to deal with the contemporary needs that we have on our national security? There's there's a lot of there's a lot of things to unpack in that question, Senator. And let me try let me try it. First off, I think one thing that is necessary is in our in our own house, and I believe that we are all now raising to that challenge, which is we can't operate as as six different entities, each going their own way with their own own strategies. The the world is now much more interlinked, and we need to 
restructure ourselves and also restructure our habits and our ways of thinking in order to use USAGM as a whole to fight the fact that this disinformation is coming from three primary actors and spreading out around the entire world. And when you talk about the fact that we get kind of caught with our uh, on the wrong foot, you know, you, you mentioned the fact that, or uh, someone earlier mentioned the fact that the Latin America uh, region is is very underfunded. And that's because, oh, for years and years, it was kind of considered a reasonably, you know, it needed, it needed uh, information, but it wasn't, it wasn't the prime target of such uh, amazing disinformation as it is now. So we have, to, we have to adjust to meet that. And that's true in other parts of the world as well. And um, let's see the other question. Are we, are we, are we nimble enough and, and, and able to get our resources up quick enough? Well, you know, Congress has in fact been extremely, extremely responsive to these, to these uh, challenges and we appreciate that. But we need, we need to be able to, to get funds and deploy them more quickly. And also, we need to think about different structures that will help us be more flexible and take red tape, take friction out of the system, help us get our work to the audiences they need to be uh, much more efficiently, much more quickly. But do, do you have the legal authority to adjust the resources to meet the current priorities of our nation, uh, knowing that you have grantees, knowing that you have commitments of personnel around the world, uh, can you adjust that under the authority that you have? And do you feel like you can do that in order to meet what it may be the current priorities? Uh, te technically, I, I believe that authority rests with me. Practically, the uh, question is, do you have the authority and can you use that authority? Congress does also pretty much lay out where they want those resources to be to be spent. So if if we need if we want greater flexibility, we have to both learn to work together on on how we how which we brings do that. me to that point. And I, I understand that, and we have our own political hurdles here that sometimes will make it less. Uh, we can't move as quickly as our adversaries can move. So the question is, how do we work together? How do we get that? information from you as to what we need to do in adjusting resources. We may not be able to add, but we may want to adjust where the resources are being placed. How do we make sure we have that information? Senator, I'm, 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 I'm thrilled to hear your interest in, in, in that, and that is something that we are always, we're, we're always evaluating inside our own operation. We, we right now have evaluations of what, you know, where Radio Free Asia would like to go with its, with its funding, where Radio Free Europe would like to go with its funding, where the Office of Cuba Broadcasting, which is also the target of malign influence in, in, from the Chinese via, in, via Cuba into Latin and South America. So there's always, ways in which we need to think about how to reallocate those resources and certainly a greater flexibility and a greater openness and willingness on the part of this committee to engage with us, we would be absolutely eager to rise to that challenge. And I'll just conclude on this. Every one of your partners are carrying out very important missions and they're gonna protect their ability to be effective in doing that. But if our priority is to shift to a different region we may have to adjust resources in order to meet the current risks. And that's sometimes difficult politically to do,
but we have to have a way in which we can try to make those decisions. In, in every budget, no matter how generous and large it is, you always have to make tough choices about reallocation of the of, of allocation of the assets to meet whatever the greatest challenge is. Senator Ricketts. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Ms. Bennett, for being here today. The threat of disinformation, weaponizing information against the United States and our allies to divide us, divide our citizens, is on the rise. And I think we all feel that. It's uh, especially so because we all have access to one of these now. So citizens and policymakers all have access to that through social media or other sorts of uh, platforms. But the idea that our adversaries would try to use dis information to divide us is not new. That was certainly something, for example, the Soviet Union prioritized during the Cold War as an element of their statecraft to destabilize the United States and our allies at the time. And I believe that in 1980, for example, there was a conservative estimate the Soviet Union spent $3 billion on disinformation campaigns as part of their overall strategy. Uh, with an increasingly aggressive China and Russia, we've entered into what seems like or feels like a new Cold War, and certainly it's true that we have, for the first time in our history, two near-peer nuclear competitors that are competing against us, and we see the spread of this disinformation. When you and I spoke in our office, my office last week, you emphasized the need for more resources for U.S. AGM to compete against China and Russia. I think you described that China alone is outspending the U.S. Uh, 10 to 1 with regard to their campaigns. How much did the U.S. spend back during the Cold War against the Soviet Union if the Soviet Union was spending $3 billion? Do you know, Ballpark, what was the U.S. spending to be able to counter that? Yes, Senator. As soon as I left your office, I went back and we looked at our research department to see if we could figure out something like that. Uh, I don't have the exact figures here in front of me at the moment, but it was, um, it was very similar to the ratio that we, that, we have, that we have today. And so one of the lessons from that could be that the advantages that we have in terms of providing trusted, believable, independent news and information is actually a great asset that enables us to do it much more efficiently. I, I, would, I would suggest that we are now not just facing one powerful adversary in Russia. We are facing several in Russia, China, and Iran. And China and Iran in particular are very, very skillful in using technology to help both close off their own areas and um, and reach into other areas. So I think the you get two you get two results from that in, that information that that the ratio was probably pretty close to to what it is today. One is that we we have something to offer. We have a a, a weapon that's worth using and deploying. And the second is that we had a certain ratio that's the same facing one major adversary, whereas today we face at least three and increasing technological hurdles to, to, uh, to leap over. So what lessons can we draw from the previous Cold War against the Soviet Union that allowed us to be successful? I mean, ultimately, the Soviet Union fell apart, and we certainly worked on getting our message out then. What lessons can we draw from that to apply to today's scenario? You know, one of the things is, I, I, I'm sure many of you have traveled around various parts of the world, and one of the things I'd like, I, I, I tell people I'd like them to have the opportunity 50 years from now to have people say about what we're doing today, what people say we were do, about what we were doing then. Virtually any country you travel to, you will find people coming up to you and saying, 
I got hope from, from Voice of America Radio for Europe, which are the two ones working in there. We, we kept on believing we could, we could win this. We could break out of this. I learned English. I moved to a different country. I had a career. We, we had the blankets over our heads. This was a tremendously powerful um, uh, tool that we had in telling people objective news information. And it was the fact that it was objective and believable, and the information they were getting from their own countries was not. We face that identical situation today, so our critical advantage still remains our independence and our believability. And I believe that you know, 50 years from now, we're going to have people coming up to us and saying, you are the reason I believe that, that, that we were all going to get through this and the, the information we were hearing from Russia and China was not correct. Mm -hmm. So are, are there other tactics, though, that we could learn from the old Cold War that we should be applying today? One of the tactics is we don't, we shouldn't be, we should be working technologically extremely rigorously and through our Open Technology Fund is one way we absolutely will doing that to get into closed environments. The environments are closing rapidly around the world and not just in China, not just in Iran, not just in Russia, but in many, many other markets. But the lessons we can learn from the Cold War, given the state of the technology available to us in those days, we were equally shut out of those markets. As a matter of fact, I think in many places, we didn't even know if anyone was listening until after those countries, uh, the countries fell and people were able to get in and, and, and see and hear. In Albania, for, for instance, I, I traveled to Albania a couple of years ago, and I don't think we had a very good idea of what our audience was, and it turned out that our audience was massive and, and, and very, very profoundly affected by it. So my lesson that I would draw is that we, should not be afraid of the closed markets, that we still have something to offer, but we do need to do everything we can to get our news and information into those markets despite the fact that they're closed. All right, well, thank you, Ms. Bennett. Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Booker. Mr. Chairman, I'm grateful uh, for this opportunity. Thank you to the ranker as well. Um, how are you? I'm, thank you, Senator. I'm fine, thank you. Good, I, I wanna uh, ask some questions that are more focused on on Africa, and as you know, it's home to about 1.46 billion people, the world's uh, eighth, uh, excuse me, the world's uh, youngest population. Uh, the continent is, has an average age of about 19.5 years old, and in many ways, it's really important, as you know, to, for the United States uh, to show up and provide a platform for fair reporting. And so recognizing the success of Radio Free Europe and Radio Free Asia, What's the viability of a similar program in Africa? I think, I think that it's something we ought to investigate. I think we ought to investigate the best way of reaching into the African continent and into the, 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 the Latin, Latin America and South America. I think we ought to look at it and see whether or not that's a viable way of operating. Um, I'm, I'm heading to Kenya next week, um, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to meet thanks to USAGM pulling them all together, 40 of the African continent's largest media CEOs. And the purpose, for my purpose, is to say, what are you getting from China that you're not getting from us? Tell us what they're doing. Tell us if you're satisfied. Tell us what we can do to better reach you. Tell us how we can better reach you, how we can be better partners to you. So I think we ought to investigate every possible means of reaching the continent. No, I appreciate that, because what the PRC does on the continent is is stunning. They in, they use the media in Africa, really to amplify and spread pro-China uh, propaganda. And according to a recent U.S. Institute of Peace report, China uses 
local outlets, and influential African voices to disseminate and authenticate its Africa-focused propaganda. And so this is really disturbing, and I'm wondering how closely does the USAGM work with local journalists to discredit this misinformation on the continent? We have, we have um, a large number of affiliates in both both the continents that we're, we're talking about right now in, in Africa and Latin America. We have a large number of local affiliates, but part of the reason I'm going down there is to make sure that I can see that we keep those affiliates and don't lose, lose them to uh, China and Russia, and also to see what it is we need to do to expand our, our partnership reach in, in this vital area because getting our news and information through local partners is a really, really efficient and, um, and it gives us credibility in, in being able to do that. So we, we have a large number of partners right now, we need more. And when you say partners, you know, African journalists are extraordinary, uh, but there's almost like a competition going on for their hearts and minds, right? And, and one of the things is we, we, do train, we do train journalists. The other thing we do is we work together with local journalists to do perhaps important investigations that they, that they need to have done because we can provide the kind of safety, not safety and security, but the kind of distance that, that keeps them, makes them more willing to take the risks of doing, uh, doing vital investigations. So they find that working with us gives them a little bit of, a little bit of security. And, and so we are, in fact, doing that quite a bit, is partnering with local journalists. And USAGM, how is it working really on emerging technologies and digital platforms? Because this is a lot of the ways that young people are uh, communicating with such a huge youth bubble it seems to me that we need to sort of find ways to communicate on those platforms effectively. And what extent is the Open Technology Fund a part of that kind of effort? So, right, the, the Open Technology Fund incubates and develops and provides the kind of circumvention technology that enables people to get past the digital shutdowns in these, these areas and to reach out into other places where they can reach the, the information they want and need. And we had to, basically late last year, as a result of the, um, the demonstrations that took place, as a result of the young woman who was killed for, for, for being you know, detained by the morality police, we basically ran through the entire circumvention budget, or close to the entire circumvention budget, in, in a little over a month, two months, because the demand for our circumvention technology was so great. So using that, that's a, that is a really important thing, is the Open Technology Fund and its ability to provide means for people to get news and information through, techno through the vital technology. Thank you. Mr. Chairman, and to the ranker, I know there's no coincidence that you are all holding this hearing on World Press Freedom Day, and it's probably been mentioned already. Um, you, you cannot have a democracy without the free press. It's essential. It's not a luxury. And it's vital not just for democracy, but also for human rights. And I have a feeling this was already mentioned, but I, I just want to join the chorus of bipartisan senators calling on the Russian government to immediately release uh, American journalist Evan Gershkovitz. Uh, his wrongful detention is not only outrageous and unacceptable, it's an affront to the ideals of freedom uh, and freedom of the press. 
Thank you, Senator. It has been mentioned by Senator Haggerty in his opening statement or his comments, and we all join you in those, those comments. I, I know you know that Senator Haggerty and I are aligned far more than people uh, seem to know. We, we, we do know that. We are reporting on that every day. Yes, we, that's yes. independent journalism. And rumors has it, I don't know if this is a propaganda or not, but he's thinking about shaving his head to be more like me in the future. <laughs> I, I thought you were going to let your hair grow. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. You can see we get along in this committee. I, I, I want to thank Senator Booker for raising Africa uh, from the point of view of having a physical presence of an organization, news organization uh, in Africa, and your reply about Africa and also Latin America and our own hemisphere. Uh, China is extremely active in, in both Africa and in our hemisphere. It's been reported that they have 45 contracts with news organizations in our hemisphere. That's China. And we know that their contracts many times exclude fair reporting of, of accurate information. So I think to have a, a, a physical presence is something that really needs to be explored. Senator Brasso. Uh, thanks, thanks, Mr. Chairman. Thanks, Ms. Better. Great to see you again. Thanks. For, I just wanted to congratulate you on the work you're doing, the men and women who work with you, uh, getting the truth out. And it's harder and harder to do these days. You know, in, in March, I think, of 2023, this year, the Russian court announced the bankruptcy of Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty's operations for failure to comply with their foreign agent law. I um, wonder how, how safe you feel your journalists are, being potential for being detained. I don't know how many you have uh, in Russia, and I don't, I'm not going to ask you to, to display that number here today, but just give us your thoughts. Thank you, Senator. And you know, when you talk about being flexible, being nimble, there was a situation that required the ultimate in, in, in flexibility and the ability to move fast because we had to very quickly work to get the majority of our journalists out of the country and to someplace safe. And neighboring countries were very accommodating. The Czech Republic, for example, and, and Latvia were very welcoming in, in, in receiving those. And we've had to turn to Congress to help us get funding to create news centers for these journalists to work out of in places on the Russian periphery. So yes, that had a, a, a tremendous impact on our work in, inside, inside Russia. And But as I say, being shut out of malign countries by forcible means is nothing new to this organization. And we intend to fully continue to do that. And I'd just like to say, to say one thing. Radio Free Europe and Voice of America in Russian currently reach about 10% of adults inside Russia. And that may not sound like an, a lot until you realize that America's two most popular news-based programs only reach right about 20%, and that is in the freest media market in the, United, in the world. So in, in a closed environment, we are able to reach 10% of the, of the adults there. So despite what's happening, you know, we're also you're dealing with the disinformation that comes out within within Russia. You know, January, their Ministry of Foreign Affairs posted on social media a claim that they had obtained 20,000 documents regarding a supposed secret U.S. biological weapons program in Ukraine. And this isn't the first time Russia's made the U.S. a victim of disinformation campaign. What's our current experience teaching us about countering the kind of disinformation that comes out? 
Two things. One, one is that each one of our uh, major entities now has a very robust fact-checking operation. So that's one thing that's very important. So checking the facts that, that provide it to the, the, uh, the people who consume our, our products. But on the, other, on the other hand, I think a lot of our power comes from not countering and not pushing back, but providing alternatives. Because if the only thing you see and hear is the disinformation, then it's the only thing you see and hear. For us, putting out credible news and information. And, and again, I, I have, a, I have a, a, a chart that I'd be happy to show everybody that shows what happens to the audiences of each one of our networks when something happens inside the country, when the people inside that country are receiving news and information that they don't trust from their own government. And that is the, the headscarf, the, the headscarf pro protest, our, our Iranian the audience went like this, or digital audience went like this, do, 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 and it, went, I mean, it, was, it was that much of a thing. And the same thing, the same thing with the China COVID, COVID protest. People during the time when they cannot believe their own governments, despite the volume of information they're getting, they turn to us, they come to us, they seek us out. My, my final question is that you know, China and Russia seem to be joining forces in a number of different things, and part of it is, is this. In April, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty reported that they had received some leaked documents and recordings which confirmed reports of Russia and China collaborating on censorship uh, and Internet control tactics. Uh, the information provided showed that officials from Russia and China share strategies for tracking dissidents, for controlling the Internet. Uh, they've asked each other for help in blocking what they call dangerous uh, news, what we might call the truth, and uh, for advice on how to impede some of the technology that's coming. So what are the key elements that you are focusing on, the United States is focusing on, to counter the Chinese and Russian messaging? Yes, no, that's absolutely true, and we are, we are seeing that on the ground, and, and I'm, I'm actually hoping that that's something I'm going to get much more insight into when I make my trip to Kenya to meet with the media executives, because they're, they're the ones that have the real foot on the ground, because they're actually the targets, the CEOs of existing um, news organizations in these continents are the, are the targets. So finding out from them exactly what is happening and how we can... Um, I hate to say defend ourselves against that, but make sure that we are providing good and reliable alternatives to give them the option. Well, th thank you for the great job you're doing. Thank you, thank Mr. You, Chairman. Thank you, Senator. Let me thank you for your dedication to this mission. We're very uh, proud of your leadership, and uh, thank you for your testimony today. Senator, thank you very much. Thank you, all of you. I, I really appreciate your attention. Thank you so much. We'll now turn to our second uh, panel. Let me uh, welcome our, our three witnesses. Our first is Jessica Brandt, who's the Policy Director for the Artificial Intelligence and Emerging Technology Initiative at Brookings. Her recent publication focused on foreign in interference, disinformation, digital authoritarianism, and the implication of emerging technologies for liberal democracies. Ms. Brandt was previously head of, of policy and research for the Alliance for Securing Democracy at the German Marshall Fund and held fellowships at Brookings and the Belfort Center for Science and International Affairs at Harvard University. Our second on this panel is Christopher Walker, Vice President for Studies and Analysis at the National Endowment for Democracy. In this capacity, he oversees the International Forum of Democratic Studies, a leading center for the analysis and discussion of democratic development. Prior to joining the NED, Walker, Mr. Walker was 
Vice President for Strategies and Analysis at Freedom House. And our third member of this panel is David Stilwell, Stilwell uh, who's already been mentioned uh, by uh, Senator Haggerty, who is the Fox Fellow for Future Pacing Threats at the Air Force Academy's Institute for Future Conflict. In this role, he educates cadets and faculty on the growing military threat presented by the People's Republic of China, as well as PRC's strategy of political warfare, especially in the use of information warfare to undermine democracies. He served as the Assistant Secretary of State for East Asia and Pacific Affairs from 2019 to 2021. Prior to that, he served in the Air Force for 35 years. He enlisted as a Korean linguist in 1980, served as a fighter pilot and a commander for 25 years, then as defense attache to Beijing. He retired in 2015 as Brigadier General, serving as the Asia Advisor to the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs. A pretty busy guy. That's an incredible resume. It's impressive to have all three of you here. We thank you for your dedication and service on, on, the, on this type of an issue. And we'll start with Ms. Brandt. Well, thank you. Thank you, Chairman Cardin, uh, Ranking Member Haggerty, uh, distinguished members of the committee for inviting me to address you today. Um, as you're aware, the United States is engaged in a persistent asymmetric competition with authoritarian challengers, and the information space is a critical theater. As part of this competition, autocrats in Moscow and Beijing, but also elsewhere, have leveraged multiple asymmetries. Russia and China both deliberately spread or amplify information that's false or misleading. Both operate vast propaganda networks that use multiple modes of communication to disseminate their preferred versions of events. Both spread numerous, often conflicting conspiracy theories designed to deflect blame for their wrongdoing, dent the prestige of the United States, and cast doubt on the notion of objective truth. And both frequently engage in whataboutism to frame the United States as hypocritical while using a network of proxy influencers to churn up anti-American sentiment around the world. For Putin and Xi, the goal of these pursuits is to tighten their grip on power at home and to weaken their democratic competitors abroad. For the United States, like other democracies, an open information environment confers tremendous long-term advantages, but it also creates near-term vulnerabilities that can be exploited using low-cost, often deniable tools and tactics. Where democracies depend on the idea that the truth is knowable, autocrats have no such need for a healthy information space to thrive. In fact, they benefit from widespread public skepticism that the truth exists at all. Strict control over their information environments affords autocrats a degree of insulation from critics, so they freely exploit Western social media platforms that they ban at home, and in doing so, face virtually no normative constraints on lying. As a result of these asymmetries, autocrats have made remarkable advances. Distinguished members, the information space may be the most consequential terrain over which states will compete in the decades to come, and the United States needs a strategy to prevail, one that's rooted in considerable asymmetric advantages of our own. So what should such a strategy entail? I think to start with, the United States can seize the initiative by harnessing truthful information to defend our interests and the integrity of the global information environment. To do this, Washington should undertake concerted campaigns grounded in truthful messaging to expose the failures and false promises of dictatorship. It should also uphold freedom of information worldwide, not just because it's consistent with democratic principles, but because it puts Russia and China in a defensive position. And we should support high-quality journalism abroad, particularly in places where democracy is backsliding, since independent media keep citizens informed and hold power to account. Ultimately, defending democratic interests in the information domain will require thinking beyond it. Washington should use the economic tools and cyber capabilities at its disposal, of course where appropriate and within existing authorities, to deter autocratic regimes from conducting information operations and to undercut their capabilities. And we should do all of this in partnership with other democratic governments, recognizing that this is ultimately a contest over principles and that our strong network of partners and allies is perhaps our greatest advantage. 
There are numerous steps USAGM can take to advance the strategy and to position itself for success in an era of information competition. Let me propose five. First, focus attention and resources on Latin America. Through the first quarter of this year, three of the five most retweeted Russian state media accounts on Twitter messaged in Spanish. Five of the 10 fastest growing ones targeted Spanish language audiences. On TikTok, RT and Espanol is among the most popular Spanish language media outlets. It's 29.6 million likes, uh, makes it more popular than Telemundo, Univision, BBC Mundo, and El País. Likewise on Facebook, RT and Espanol currently has more followers than any other Spanish language international broadcaster. And others too are succeeding in the region. China's CGTN in Espanol has roughly six times more followers on Facebook than VOA Spanish, and Venezuela's Telesur and Iran's Hispan TV have also amassed sizable followings. I think this reflects at least in part a resource prioritization problem. In 2023, the budget for VOA's Latin America division was slightly more than $10 million. That's less than half of its Eurasia division. It's less than a quarter of its East Asia and Pacific division. Of the 12 overseas bureaus operated by VOA, none are in Latin America. Spanish is the fourth most spoken language in the world, and content produced for Latin American audiences could have enormous reach. So USAGM should increase investments in VOA Spanish and consider the feasibility of opening a bureau within the region. It could also do things like using public-private partnerships to create low-cost distribution agreements that would allow material created by Spanish speakers right here in the United States to reach audiences through local trusted sources. Second, USAGM should leverage 21st century digital tools, continuing to invest in social media analysis capabilities that enable it to understand the concerns of its audience. By doing so, USAGM can equip itself to develop tailored and compelling editorial positions. These are essential for staying relevant in a crowded modern media market. USAGM should also use analytics to evaluate the performance of its content, since success will depend on continuously identifying and prioritizing the most impactful materials. Um, in addition, USAGM should continue supporting cutting-edge open, uh, open internet and circumvention tools that enable journalists to provide independent news coverage. Doing so is a means of combating the, the censorship that enables autocrats to thrive, and it also facilitates reporting that speaks truth to power and promotes an engaged citizenry, and therefore builds resilience against disinformation and propaganda in societies around the world. USAGM could also consider whether AI systems, for example, could be used to translate high-quality content for dissemination in multiple languages. Recent advances could make it possible to do so quickly and at low cost, boosting the reach of its most compelling materials. Third, center authentic local voices. Moscow and Beijing frequently use local influencers to improve the reach and resonance of their messaging. So without wavering from its commitment to journalistic excellence or editorial transparency, USAGM could borrow an element of this approach and center the voices of local investigative journalists and civil society leaders in its content. Doing so may help that content strike a chord with local audiences, especially in places where the United States may not be inherently trusted. Fourth, focus on themes that attract global audiences. The United States and other liberal democracies have struggled to develop a coherent post-Cold War message. And as a result, Washington has frequently defaulted to emphasizing support for human rights or efforts to root out corruption, narratives that may resonate primarily with elites or be seen as, worse, be seen as hypocritical. US public diplomacy should focus on themes that appeal to broad audiences, including America's uh, incredible capacity for innovation and entrepreneurship and its support for free expression. And in its coverage of the United States, VOA should not hesitate to present the American experience in its full complexity. This includes critical assessments of US policy. It is a sign of strength, not weakness, for a US government-funded entity to reckon honestly with its challenges. 
I think doing so may resonate with those who are struggling to nurture their own democracies. Finally, don't try to be everywhere all the time. As it works toward impact, USAGM should focus on places where people get their news. In many countries, Facebook and YouTube, much more so than Twitter. Uh, so drawing on the knowledge of professional content marketers, it might also explore whether there are best practices for reaching audiences on WhatsApp, given its popularity as a source of news. Ultimately, I think there's wisdom in USAGM's acknowledgement that it cannot adopt every new platform in every target market. Distinguished members, the information space is a, is a critical theater of the emerging competition between the United States and its authoritarian challengers, and we need a strategy to prevail, one that meets the moment and draws on our considerable strengths. By taking these steps, USAGM can play a central role, positioning us and itself for success. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, Mr. Walker? Good afternoon, Mr. Chairman, Mr. Ranking Member, and members of the subcommittee. Thank you for the invitation uh, to speak with you today. If there ever were a time the United States and its democratic allies to make competition in the information domain a top-order global priority, it would be now. Over a protracted period of time, authoritarian regimes have massively scaled up their capabilities to suppress unfavorable information and amplify authoritarian pro-regime messaging across the global information sphere. Although there are differences in the shape and tone of the Chinese and Russian approaches, both stem from a governance model that privileges state power over individual liberty, and is fundamentally hostile to free expression, open debate, and independent thought. A picture of these regimes' intent can be found in their domestic media landscapes, which have long been standard operating procedure for Beijing and Moscow, among other regimes, to suppress dissent, smear or silence political opponents, and inundate their populations with propagandistic content. Authorities in China, Russia, Iran, and other autocracies systematically intimidate, harass, imprison their own media professionals. In an era of rising impunity, these regimes are more inclined to impose such harsh measures on foreign journalists. The Washington Post Jason Rezian was imprisoned in Iran for 544 days. Russia's detention of the Wall Street Journal's Evan Gershkovich is the most recent deeply disturbing case of this kind and deserves particular attention on World Press Freedom Day. In the quest for information dominance, however, nowhere is the manipulation of media and ideas more embedded in the system than in today's China. Domestically, the Chinese authorities have built a formidable infrastructure of social management that increasingly relies on advanced technologies to surveil and engineer societal behavior. In recent months, the authorities in Beijing have effectively obscured the deaths of one million people who are believed to have perished due to the abrupt turnabout in the country's zero COVID policy. The real, world, the real world impact of Beijing's controlling approach to the information domain was felt internationally through its manipulation of the WHO, the hobbled response of the world's leading public health body at the outset of the pandemic was no doubt related to the PRC's furtive approach to the breakout of the virus, for which millions of people within and beyond China have paid a terribly high price. This episode speaks to the situation in which we find ourselves today. In a globalized information environment, the media norms and behaviors of the authoritarians don't stay neatly confined within the borders of their own repressive systems. Let me take a moment to put into perspective the extent to which the global mobilization of media undertaken by Russia and China is impacting us. Over the past two decades, Beijing and Moscow, along with like-minded regimes, have developed a diverse range of efforts to shape perceptions and project their preferred worldview while contesting the ideas they find undesirable. 
Russia reportedly puts more than $300 million annually into RT, which is one of its principal engines for content generation. One recent estimate places Moscow's outward-facing information-related investments at $1.5 billion. The Islamic Republic of Iran Broadcasting, which functions as the Iranian regime's state propaganda agency, in 2022 saw its budget increase to an estimated $1.2 billion. China has spent and continues to spend tens of billions of dollars to shape public opinion and perceptions around the world, including thousands of people-to-people -people exchanges, wide-ranging cultural activities, and development of media enterprises with global reach. In this new environment, authoritarian regimes have exploited trends to muddy the information space, create societal cleavages in our societies, and obscure their own actions. Ultimately, authoritarian information strategies seek to undermine trust in democratic institutions and ideas. The autocrats have built out massive outward-facing strategic communications capabilities. The large and complex challenge posed by authoritarian regimes requires a response on multiple fronts. For its part, the National Endowment for Democracy supports independent journalism internationally to provide citizens with pluralistic and fact-based journalistic information. In 2022, Ned made $51 million in grants to organizations working to protect democracy by strengthening independent media and freedom of information in some of the world's most repressive environments. In this competitive and evolving context, the fact that the U.S. international broadcasters, the Voice of America and the surrogates, are doing their work according to a fundamentally different set of values is as important today as at any time since the end of the Cold War. As part of a multifaceted response to today's global information competition, U.S. international broadcasters have an especially crucial role to play, including systematically providing accurate and uncensored news in a growing number of places where free media is hobbled or severely at risk. The critical importance of such work can be seen in settings such as Xinjiang or Tibet or in Russia or in Belarus, where in, under extraordinarily repressive conditions, U.S. entities such as Radio Free Asia, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, unearth and report on issues that the authorities work so hard to keep from public view. And finally, the threats to democratic freedoms and security that arise from today's competitive global information environment requires a shift in strategic thinking among the democracies, which should seize the challenge put before us that's posed by the autocrats as an opportunity to level up our commitments in free media and in democratic innovation so that we're not perpetually playing catch up with the mal-intentioned autocrats. Thank you for your time and attention. Uh, thank you, Mr. Walker. We'll now hear from Mr. Stilwell. Chairman Cardin, Ranking Member Haggerty, uh, thank you for the opportunity. I'm not gonna repeat the, the problem. I think we're pretty clear on what the problem is. The solution, uh, I think, uh, is worth discussing. And uh, we've talked about resources and a number of other things, but. I do think we've, we're talking about the new Cold War today. Uh, I think there are a lot of lessons from the old Cold War. I'm an old Cold War product. I think most of us are. And um, I, I went to the Air Force Academy. And, and again, thank you for the introduction. Kind of lays out where I'm going to go with this. But immediately after the Air Force Academy, I picked up for the East-West Center in Hawaii, where I got my master's degree in Asian studies. The East-West Center was funded by the U.S. Information Agency. The U.S. Information Agency, if you look at its charter, says it... Uh, 
uh, it coordinates academic and cultural exchanges, international broadcasting, and other things. America's brand sells itself. We don't have to necessarily sell it or put so much effort into it. We should look back at what we did during the Cold War in terms of getting our brand out there so people can uh, take advantage of it, recognize it, and then let the, them decide which message they buy more. And I'm telling you, when we get out there or when we bring our allies and partners or friends here to the U.S., and then they compare that to what they've seen in their other trips, uh, we win. We can't help but win in that case. An assessment we should make, though, is, is the difference in environments. We look at the open information environment in the United States as a liability, and the PRC is running roughshod in that attachment that uh, Senator Haggerty put up. Thank you for putting that out there. You can see that the PRC has CGT, CGTN, China Radio National, putting China Daily inserts into New York Times, have full access to American people. Um, truth has a, you know, a ring to it that everybody recognizes, but propaganda also carries a message as well. And the PRC effort here is to divide the United States, is to make us fight ourselves so we're too weak to fight them when the time comes. Open information environment is a liability, but it's a massive uh, advantage that they don't have. And the point here, and th this is one of those contradictions that we should take more advantage of, is they need our information to innovate because you can't do it inside of an authoritarian closed uh, country. You can't share information about Xi Jinping in China today unless you want to call him Winnie the Pooh. Um, there's, they have to dance around these things. Innovation is tough in China. An example is in 1999 when uh, a US B-2 accidentally bombed the Chinese embassy in Belgrade. Um, the PRC routed, got a bunch of its people out there to protest in front of the US embassy. And they did for a time, but it didn't take very long for them to all like gather their forces and go, you know what, let's next go down to Zhongnanhai, the leadership compound, and let's protest authoritarian government in our country. And that is the end of uh, you know, those sorts of protests because they inevitably go against their government. That closed information environment where those people know that they're being lied to is an advantage for us, and we should take advantage. And we should also look at the contradiction and the paradox of a country that wants to control information because it's a direct threat to its continued leadership, but they also need it to compete with us. And, and again, I think we can use those two. Uh, one, just talk about it is, is very effective, and two, uh, we can also put it uh, um, out there for others in other agencies to take care of. I'll finish, uh, offer two more thoughts here. Um, I think there's an offensive opportunity here and there's a defensive opportunity. Uh, in the offensive opportunity, look at what Starlink did to Ukraine. If it weren't for Starlink, remember the Russians cut off all fiber optic uh, information access in Ukraine, Ukraine would have been forgotten about and it would be gone today. Uh, but within 48 hours of that cutting off information, uh, Starlink and, and uh, SpaceX put a communication you know, on orbit, high, uh, low latency 5G, uh, made it available for the president and for the Ukrainian people. Uh, that's an approach we should definitely take, and it's a human right. It is part of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights that people have access to information. China is a signatory to the Declaration of Universal Human Rights, and therefore we should insist that they allow their people to have access. And where they don't, we should find ways to let their people have access. We talked about VPNs and other things. A second one is journalists in this country, and we worked really hard on this when I was in the previous administration, was to make sure that um, there was an evenness in, in journalists. They kicked out all the good American journalists, and we were down to like 30, and they had 160. So we kicked out 60 of their journalists. I think you're gonna have to drive down to zero journalists on both sides, and then you give me one, I'll give you one. 
And then when they kick one of ours out, we kick one of theirs out. It's called reciprocity. It's the basis of, di of uh, diplomacy, and we should focus on that. With my remaining 15 seconds, I want to point out that uh, we have great advantages, and we have yet to take advantage of them, but we had lessons from the Cold War and the U.S. information agency that we should uh, look back on. Um, and then I, Senator uh, Cardin, I gave you that one book, Political Warfare. I think it's worth a look. And then this book um, out of the Asia-Pacific Center for Strategic Studies uh, about China's global influence is definitely worth a look as well. And with that, I thank you for your attention. Well, let me thank all three of our witnesses. This has been, a, I think, a very healthy debate, um, or discussion, I should say. Uh, I want to start with the point that Ms. Bennett mentioned. She gave us those numbers, which were pretty strong about the audience that our media outlets under uh, the broadcasting have versus Russia and China. Uh, but I just happen to be concerned that if you look a decade from now, whether those numbers will hold. Uh, I see Russia and China just putting so much resources into our hemisphere. Every time we travel, we, we see it. So uh, we know that they are physically present and using propaganda and disinformation in our hemisphere, in Africa. Uh, and it gets back to the question I raised a little bit earlier and, uh, and uh, Senator Booker raised earlier. We have Voice of America, I understand that. But we have the, the specific entities that are with Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty. We have Radio Free Asia. We have our office in Cuba. We have our Middle East uh, uh, focus. We don't have in our hemisphere or in Africa. Should we be having a similar type of priority organization in those two regions of the world that might answer some of your questions about having local figures uh, on our news media because you're there in a more permanent presence and you, you, you establish those types of relationships? And, and to your point, uh, General, the, uh, yes, we have an advantage, uh, but we don't always playing on a level playing field. Uh, we know that China, for example, in their contracts with the media uh, companies, exclude uh, access to, to our products. So being personally present, having a, a more personal involvement in, in the region seems to me might be a worthy investment. Ms. Brandt? Uh, yes, as I mentioned, I do think um, that there's uh, considerable wisdom uh, in considering the feasibility of opening a regional bureau in Latin America. I mean, I think presence on the ground is essential to building out a network of stringer reporters, again, trusted relationships with uh, local civil society uh, members, activists, journalists, uh, rights defenders in the community. So I think, um, you know, building out a presence on the ground, uh, I think, is something we ought to consider. Mr. Walker? So one point I'd make at the outset is that the Chinese authorities, the Chinese party state, they put a wide range of resources in, some of which may seem nominally autonomous, but in the end they're working in coordination with the paramount political authorities in the country. It's a very different model. We're still grappling with the asymmetries where we can put um, additional resources into one of these regions, which I think is a wise idea, but that would be one piece of a puzzle in my view that um, would equip us to deal, for example, with information um, and broadcasting, but China is doing a wide range of activities and people-to-people -people exchanges, building relationships, people putting people on the payroll who work in media. 
um, and doing that for the long haul. And as you suggest, uh, we should be in this for the long haul and think about ways in which we invest that um, are consistent with democratic values but can compete in a meaningful way with this formidable um, challenger we have. Mr. Stilwell. Senator, it's a great question. Um, we have a lot of resources. Uh, we're, they're just not coordinated. Uh, my time at State Department, I, I mean, I reached over to, I mean, four or five different agencies that were working on uh, getting our message out uh, in the region and then to the PRC in uh, visible and not visible ways. But they are scattered because after 1991 or 99, when U.S. Information Agency was disbanded, we all kind of beat swords into plowshares. And, and to, to, to stand up another agency is going to take a lot of time and, and negotiation. I'm not saying we wait till that. A mediocre plan executed with violence today beats a perfect plan tomorrow. So let's, let's get to the 80% solution or the 50% solution, but let's start to coordinate. And I'd start with defense and state, getting them to coordinate more directly. Which is the point I was raising a little bit earlier about this organizational structure. And we, the Congress has tried to struggle with this over, we've changed it twice in, in recent years. Uh, but we should be nimble enough to adjust to current priorities. And I don't really see that. I don't see us adjusting, taking resources from one part of the world to another part of the world because we see a national security interest in getting information out, accurate information out, because of the activities of our adversaries. And I just haven't seen that nimbleness. And I, it, part of it might be our responsibility in Congress, the way that we appropriate and the way that we've set up the structure. Uh, we know that we can't always put a lot more resources into a program. So if the resources are not being adequately used or not being coordinated well, it's, it's, it's compromising our ability uh, to, to accomplish the mission. So it's something we need to take a look at. Senator Haggerty. Thank you, Senator Cardin. I'd like to come back to a couple of statements that struck me. First, Ms. Brandt, you said, and to use your own words, the information space is the most consequential, I think those are the words you used, modern-day battleground where we encounter our adversaries. And something Ms. Bennett said, and I'm glad you're still here, Ms. Bennett, that, that really struck me. Uh, was the fact that USAGM is a weapon to use and deploy. Those were the words that you used, a weapon to use and deploy. And I agree with you. I think USAGM is a strategic asset of the United States. And as such, I think USAGM activities should be supportive of our foreign policy, and they should be aligned with our national security interests. So I just wanted to get that on the record. Your comment really struck me. And I look forward to following up with you again on some of the data that, uh, and analytics that you've put together. General Stowell, I'd like to turn to you. It is uh, great to see you again. I'd like to say it was an honor to serve with you when I was U.S. Ambassador to Japan and you took over the realm, uh, took over the, the reins, I should say, of uh, the East Asia Pacific Bureau. Um, you're no stranger to Communist China's malign influence and propaganda campaigns. When you served as uh, the Assistant Secretary of State for East Asia and Pacific Affairs, I know you worked very closely on closing China's consulate in Houston. You designated 15 Chinese state-run media outlets as foreign missions and drastically reduced the number of PRC state-backed so-called journalists operating in the United States due to reciprocity issues and national security issues. You touched on this earlier, but I'd like, if you would, General Stilwell, to go a little bit deeper into uh, why you took the actions that you did when you were at the State Department and how important this is. Senator Haggerty, thank you for that. And uh, I could go on forever. I'll keep it tight, though. Uh, when I was a defense attache, uh, I could not call my counterpart on the Chinese military side. 
They wouldn't give me the phone number. I had to fax them. I asked the Chinese defense attache here how he gets a hold of people, and he had every phone for the Department of Defense, every number on his phone. And this is a problem of reciprocity. Over 40 years of trying to win the PRC over with carrots, we forgot about sticks. Mm -hmm. We forgot to enforce standards and, and universal standards. They signed up for UNCLOS. They walked away from it. They signed up for the basic law in Hong Kong, and they walked away from it. We called these empty promises. These were promises made with no intention of following through. They just want the climate virtue with Paris and, and all the rest of that. So, sir, um, with the help of uh, uh, great leadership from Secretary Pompeo and, and, and the Congress, we um, looked at those areas where the relationship was most out of balance, and we decided to take, uh, take them to task, not for the purpose of destroying the relationship, but to get them to see the benefit of reciprocity, to giving our journalists the same access in their country that theirs have in ours. Um, and the same with the consulate. You know, there's certain limits to what you can do as a diplomat, you know, stipulated by the Vienna Convention. They were violating that left and right. So it was, it, we had to do that. They closed Chengdu in return, and that's what you expect. Um, but there's a lot more work to do. We had other plans that we were going to execute uh, that, you know, I'm doing my best to work with the current administration as well to enact. Well, the term reciprocity, I think, really resonates with me, and I'm certain that it does uh, in, in many other cases. We've talked so often uh, using other lexicon, free markets and that type of thing. But frankly, when you get down to it, reciprocity is a key operating principle. I appreciate you raising that. I'd, I'd like for you, if you might, to just expand on how we could take lessons from what you did here in the United States to a global context. I think a coordinated effort across the interagency would be a great start. And the current national defense strategy talks about integrated deterrence. That's integration across regions, but it really the place we have to start is integration across uh, agencies in the US government. And this body has the capability to do that, to, to get treasury and state and pick, pick an agency to start working together more closely. Um, and, and sir, I think in the topic we're talking about today, I'm, I know I'm beating a dead horse, uh, we need to get some central coordination body going in terms of overt white world uh, information sharing and then those other things that the law allows us to do, but coordinate it, vice just trusting that you know, we'll find the right answer eventually. And somebody's got to be in charge of information. If I could finish, um, in the military parlance, we talk about the levers of national power as the dime. Di di diplomacy, information, military, economic, and there's others. There is an agency secretary. There, there's a cabinet-level secretary for all of those, except for one, and that's the I. Mm -hmm. There is no cabinet-level secretary for information. And I'm sitting here today, I spent my whole life looking, studying war and bombs and bullets, and I'm telling you, I'm scared to death we're going to lose in the information space. Back to what Ms. Brandt said, the most consequential competition that we have today. Thank you for raising that, General Stilwell. I look forward to continuing to work with you in terms of articulating a plan to coordinate, just as you say. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Ricketts. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you to all of our panelists for being here today. The topic I would like to talk about is China's use of AI. They've become a global leader in artificial intelligence, and they've been developing for a long time now something called deep fake technology, and has progressed along to the point where they've been able to use AI to distort public figures. Um, an example of how a public figure might be distorted is uh, when uh, Vladimir Zelensky was uh, portrayed as announcing a surrender last year. 
And the software can not only use, be used to distort real people, but can also create people out of whole cloth. Uh, I believe uh, the China state-aligned influence operation used a AI-generated fictitious news anchors to promote China's global role in spreading disinformation around the world. So we've got this deepfake video technology. You can create fictitious people. Um, they could be used to really cloud even further people's ability to discern what's real information and what's not real information. So I'd like, uh, actually, uh, both Ms. Brandt and General Stilwell, would you answer this question? How concerned are you about our adversaries' use of AI and the deepfake technologies for disinformation purposes, and, and what is the best way for the U.S. to respond? That recent advances in generative AI, both uh, in video but also text and, and audio, uh, could have enormous effects on the health and strength of our information environment. I think we could see it um, meaningfully changing the actors that are sort of using these techniques, the behaviors that they uh, adopt, and also the content itself, how persuasive it is and uh, also how discoverable it is. Uh, so I think it's something we ought to be paying attention to. Those are the first order consequences. There's a second order consequence, uh, and that is, you know, once we live in a world where we can no longer trust, uh, you know, what we see with our own eyes. Uh, it's, um, we call it the liar's dividend, right? Those who are willing to say that actually truthful video of me isn't, it is not me, uh, right? We live in, a, we begin to live in a world where we can no longer uh, trust what's before us. And I think that erodes the very um, basis of the information environment that, as I've described, is essential for democracies to thrive. Senator, uh, the first one you'll agree with, the second one you'll tilt your head, but needs to be said. Uh, the first one is t uh, access to information. Information is the new oil, they say. We worked very hard to deny the PRC access to submarine cables. Uh, Huawei is, is big on this, and it's subsidized by the Chinese government, so you'd be stupid to build uh, one with an American or a you know, French company when the Chinese is offering it to you at half price. Well, it's not free, uh, and it's not cheap. It, you're going to pay for that in other ways. So I think the, f the first part in the first answer would be to deny, continue to deny them access to information freely, because that's the thing that makes AI work. Um, I mean, the second part is just an observation that we were reading, you know, I kind of monitor what goes on in the PRC fairly closely, and when they first brought in ChatGPT, uh, they were just like, hey, this is going to, decision making in the PRC is difficult. Um, and so this was going to make their decisions for them and, and, and algorithmize that and speed it up. And then all of a sudden, like next two days, you hear all of a sudden they shut it down. And you can imagine they asked, what's the solution to Taiwan? And the chat GPT comes back with, well, you should democratize. I go, okay, all right, all right, enough of that. That's, <laughs> seriously. So what they're doing right now is they're taking AI, chat GPT, and they're, they're desensitizing it so it doesn't give answers it doesn't want. In some cases, we can just sit back and watch because uh, they will not be able, because they can't allow free information, they, they're going to take this very good capability and, and you know, reduce its capability. So the second one, though, that is not re relevant to this group, but we should all think about, is we need to arm our kids to deal with the social media space. A health, and, and it comes in the form of uh, critical thinking, media literacy, and a bunch of other things. And we're working with that at the Air Force Academy right now. Uh, is to seriously, I mean, just take critical thinking seriously because we can't filter that. We've tried filtering that. I'm still banned from Twitter for suggesting that the uh, virus, the pandemic, began in the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Okay? Two years ago, that was a uh, conspiracy theory, and today we all see it's the most obvious answer. The government can't sift that information. We have to arm every individual to, when you get into this information space, to apply simple 
uh, critical thinking uh, concepts uh, so you don't become a, a dupe uh, uh, and a victim of disinformation. Uh, thank you for that, General. I, I appreciate that. In fact, I would say that applies to everything today you read in the media. I can't tell you how many times I've read, having been a former governor and knowing that stories get printed that are just not accurate, and then I read a story and I believe it right away, and I say, why am I doing that? You know, I, I should know that reporters, for a variety of reasons, don't always get it right, even in our most trusted sources, and now we're just going to have to take that to a whole new level when we've got AI that's going to be creating these fake stories. So thank you very much. Appreciate it. Let me just uh, observe, first of all, that um, uh, Ms. Bennett, you're still here. Thank you. That's not the normal, um, it's not normal for the administration's witness to stay and listen to the second panel. We thank you. And that's, I think, expected because of your desire to, to listen and, and to be part of a discussion. So I thank you very much for remaining in the committee during that time. Uh, the committee record will remain open through close of business Friday. And uh, if any member asks questions for the record, I would ask that you all respond as promptly as you possibly can. Uh, and I want to just thank all four of our witnesses. Uh, the purpose of our committee is oversight. Uh, this is an critically important weapon we have to get accurate information out where we have our adversaries trying to influence public opinion and influence action by their propaganda and disinformation. So I thank you, and I can assure you the information that's been used today, we might be getting back to you, uh, will help us in carrying out our responsibilities. And with that, the subcommittee will stand adjourned. <laughs>